Now let us turn again to Galatians chapter 4. To Galatians chapter 4. I, of course, last week had intended to go through all of chapter 4, and that just did not seem like where the Lord wanted us to be last week, so we ended where we thought it best in that time. With that being said, it gave me another week just to meditate at chapter 4, and I have enjoyed just another week just to meditate. I don't know if I've changed anything. I don't know if I've added anything notes-wise or anything such as that to where we already were last week, but it's just been good to soak in this a little bit more and have the grace of God just communicate these truths of this chapter once more. So let's go ahead and read this chapter in its fullness one more time together this morning. I hope you counted that in your count. Thank you again for being washed by the water of the word. It's truly not about the number, but nonetheless, the number gives us an estimate of what's going on here. To see you all reading so much and truly being washed by the water of the word, I was telling Miss Tara, especially last week, what a great comfort that is to be in a church that, yay, we're small in size, but beloved, I promise you, there's not too, too many churches that can look back at a number like that and say we're faithfully reading the word of God in the way that we are. So you do not know how thankful I am to you all for making that commitment, for continuing that. I just want to say thank you again, and I'm just glad you're doing it. Um, and again, I know I already shared it, but when I shared it with Brother Bagwell, the man that talked with me, I cannot tell you the joy that popped up on that man's face. And what a reminder it was, a man that's in his mid-70s, I believe it is. He'll be in revival this week with Brother T.J. Cochran at Sunrise Baptist Church, Monday through Wednesday, I believe it is. Uh, but what a joy it is that uh, the, the expositor is Brother T.J. Cochran called him. And truly, he is an expositor among expositors. He is just a wonderful preacher. But to see his joy that somebody else is doing this thing, it reminded me, and I've been chewing on it for a few weeks now, even as we're about to enter into the Word, that, beloved, just as Paul is using his relationships to pass these things down, to pass these truths down, that's our job, that's our responsibility, is with whatever relationships we have in our life to be passing these things down. And truly, as we made mention of last week, that's exactly what Paul's been cashing in on. Every single time that we've been reading about how Paul is addressing a problem, it's interesting. He's not following it with rules. He's not following it with all these other things. He is addressing what the truth of the word is. He is addressing the doctrine, but he's not browbeating them with anything. Paul has been so kind. I mean, he's tearing them to him. He is. He's using some rough and some abrasive language. Don't get me wrong. But it's amazing to me the love that he shares. He calls them his little children. He refers to them in such a fatherly sense. But last week, he reminded us that even as fatherly as he is, there is the heavenly father, which is much better than he has made us his sons. We have been made the sons of God. We have been made the children of God and therefore heirs with Christ Jesus. And there is no greater freedom than knowing that. And yet, even as that is the greatest freedom that all of the church of Galatia have ever known, there's problems. And we see that unfolding in chapter 4. So let us read the entirety of chapter 4 together again. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, deferreth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were under the element, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because your sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, 
How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of, the, of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then this blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But, that, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now. And to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now ye, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Father, we thank you for the beautiful words of this passage. We thank you for the wonderful reality of this passage. We just pray that you open our hearts, open everything about us to receive these truths, that you would take them, graft them in by the means of your spirit, that they would bring forth fruit in their due season, O oh God. Father, this morning we just pray that you feed your lambs and feed your sheep, getting all the honor and glory to your high and holy name. We pray it all in thy Son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. And amen. Again, last week I told you I've been around too many uh, Southern Baptist friends, and all of a sudden I'm alliterating everything. So we had four, we had four words last week, and we gave them to you that it, it, Paul expresses this chapter in four sections. He deals with it in four relationships: the Galatians' relationship with family, being the family of God; the Galatians' relationship with folly, and the relationship with flattery and freedom. So he deals with each of these relationships. Last week again, as we have already recalled this morning, he was mentioning of their relationship with the Heavenly Father. He's reminding them 
Who do you belong to? Who are you? Whose father? Whose lineage are you in? And this to be a great and a wonderful thing. It amazes me to see children that are adopted and how many times, that is something that's big to them. I, I can remember one gentleman for some reason in particular, he used it in a sermon one time, I've never forgotten him using it, that he was adopted by his parents and he didn't know who he'd come from, but he knew that he belonged to Jesus Christ. And that has been a powerful reminder to me that these Galatians, it didn't matter who their genealogy was. It didn't matter that they weren't of the household originally of Abraham. Through faith, they had been made in the lineage of Abraham because through faith, they were made one in Christ Jesus. That it's not all about the Abraham, it's all about God. That the covenant with Abraham was not a covenant that had much to do with Abraham, really. And sometimes we misread that. Sometimes when we're reading in the Old Testament, if we're not careful, we have a tendency to think that it's about the hero of the story. Somebody I know often sometimes it's a cliche that says somebody will always tell you dare to be a Daniel. And he said Daniel's not about Daniel. Daniel's about God. You need to know don't dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be more like God. Dare to be submitted to God. Dare to be trusting in God. Beloved, that's the way that we need to be reading the Old Testament because that's the way Paul reads the Old Testament. And if Paul is reading the Old Testament in such a way that he is showing us all of these relationships, see, there is one that is greater than Abraham that you need to be under. There's a temptation to say, I don't know who I belong to. I don't know who I come from. Well, beloved, I've run my family history on all sides that I can think of. And it's not done me any good. I'm curious about it. I'm just nosy about it. I think it's really neat that I can find all these things. But can I tell you, it's not changed a bit of my world. It's not changed who I am. It's not changed the way that I was raised. It's not changed any meaningful part of my life. Just because I know who my physical lineage of this life is, that has changed absolutely nothing. It means nothing to me, ultimately. Now, I think it's neat. I think it's cool to say, oh, well, I might be kin to so-and-so. I might be kin to this one. But, beloved, what ultimately matters is that we belong unto God. And even the Galatians, though they knew this, seemed to be departing from this. They needed to know they were heirs with Jesus Christ. They had the greatest thing that there was, and yet there seems to be they didn't think it was good enough. There seems to be something in them that was crying out, this is not good enough. And he says it this way in verse 8. He begins, he says, How be it when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Even by nature is telling you these are not gods. Even nature makes you to know that these are little gods. These are things that cannot even be held in any standard, in any, uh, any stance of life. And yet he's speaking to a people that would have been familiar with many gods. He would have been familiar with anybody that had been gods. And yet Paul is even communicating that even by nature you ought to know that so many of these are not gods. By nature you should know that which you worship was not good enough. There is something that he says in the book of Ecclesiastes he says, he has put his work into the heart of all men. Other translations often, I believe, say it. He has put eternity into the heart of all men. And truly, that is the way that it is. In every one of us, he has put some amazement within us. He has put some bewilderment in us that makes us to question these things. And we know that there is something greater out there in this world. And yet, sometimes, culture begins to beat down on us. And we begin to serve things that very by nature are not God. In verse 9. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. See how Paul communicates that? That you have known God, but rather you are known of God. How Paul takes that relationship and he shows it. He says it's a great thing that you know God, but it's a greater thing that God knows you. That, beloved, the Abrahamic covenant was not a covenant that Abraham could keep. As a matter of fact, it was given to Abraham's seed 
singular, not plural, as we've already been discussing in the book of Galatians. It was given unto Abraham's seed. Abraham couldn't have kept the covenant if he wanted to. The multiple generations after Abraham could not have kept this covenant if he had wanted to. It was by God that the covenant was ever kept. It was by the work of God that it passed around every generation. As often as Israel kept messing up, somehow God still chose to use them. God still chose to keep his covenant that he had made with Abraham because God is an all-knowing God who always knew what would happen from the moment that the eternity, from the moment of creation, God has known every element that was going to happen in your life. God has known every element of what is going to happen in this world. As R.C. Sproul used to say, there are no macromolecules. Ultimately, everything goes perfectly according to God's plan. Can you and I mess it up? Absolutely. Was it God's divine providence? Was it within God's will that these Galatians would mess up? Apparently so, because you and I might need to hear the letter of Galatians today. Did God providentially let Galatians mess up that Paul may call them back to himself? Yes, beloved. Know that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. But that does not mean you might not mess up. God is perfect. We are not. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sometimes turn back to the folly, as it were, that even King David and his prayer was dealing with. Or maybe it was another one. The Psalms that we were reading this morning, they were dealing with folly even in their time. Beloved, just as the Galatians in the earliest of church history were having to face the problems with folly, you and I are going to as well. There are things that we want to turn back to. There are things that we must be reminded that not only do we know God, but rather we are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and the beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Paul is reminding them they are weak, they are beggarly. There is nothing good about them. How easy it is for us to go back to the things of this world and try to put our trust in them, to try to put our measure of hope and assurance in them because they're things that we can see. There's things that we can hold on to. There's things that as long as I can control it within the scope of my domain, I'll be a whole lot happier. If I can just control things, I'll have no problems. When in reality, if we can control things, we've got more problems than any of us could ever ask for. If only it would go the way that I wanted it to go. If only that car in front of me would do what I'm telling that car to do. If they would just listen to me, it would be a whole lot better. And then all of a sudden, I'm reminded of how selfish I am. And yes, I'm a selfish driver. I'm confessing that this morning. I'm a selfish driver. If you get in front of me and you're not doing what I think you ought to be doing, I'm probably going to be in that car behind you telling you what you ought to be doing. I try not to be super mean about it, but sometimes I probably get a little bit too mean about it. Beloved, because I think you ought to be doing what I think you ought to be doing because I think that my way is right. And surely that's what the Galatians are called up in. They know a way that is right unto them. They know a way that is right. And that's what they're trying to go back. But these are the weak and the beggarly elements. They don't hold a comparison. They don't have a, hold a comparison of what the truth is. If anything, they put them under bondage again. He says, you observe days and months, times and years. You're going by the calendar. You're living by the almighty calendar. Oh, How many of us live just according to the calendar? That we know it's August. It's the first Sunday in August. Next week's going to be the second Sunday in August. And I've already looked at the end of the year and it scared me to death to see how many weeks are left in the year because I think, and I, I look ahead and I'm trying to think, okay, we've been through this much this year. We've been through this many books. We've been through this many passages. Oh, my stars, there's 20-something sermons left in this year. What am I going to do? I worry about all of these things, and yet I know that God's in charge of these things. I look at my calendar, and I try to live my life according to my calendar instead of trusting my calendar to God, instead of trusting every element of my day according to God. I have nothing wrong with planning. I support it. I think you ought to plan ahead. I think you ought to look ahead. I think you ought to know what is coming down the drain. And I think you better be flexible because, hold on, you don't know what's coming. Paul is saying, you observe all of these things. Was it possible, and a lot of commentators know, 
it's probable he's talking about they were following the Jewish calendar. And the Jewish calendar had something like at least seven different annual feasts that they were doing. And they had all of these different annual measurements that they were doing. And they lived by the calendar. Because as long as you just kept busy enough, then surely you were living for God. I'll admit that doesn't sound much like Shed Road. We don't have a lot of programs going on. We don't have a lot of things going on. We're purposely kept simple. But honestly, just by the scope of how many folks we've got, that's one reason we keep it so simple. We had more people, we'd do more things. That's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying by the grace of God, maybe he has kept us at the point that we are so that we learn how to operate simply. Maybe God is breaking us from a habit that we would begin to live by a calendar. How many churches did I see? How many churches that I've witnessed firsthand that they do all of these things by the calendar? I remember one time I was talking to a dear friend of mine. He was in a ministry position, and, and I started hearing him put all these different things on his calendar. I looked at him and I said, you might want to take a few of those off. You might want to pull back a little bit. You're going to wear yourself out. He was young and energetic. He said, well, I, well, I just believe God's going to get us through these things. And beloved, because it was calendared, it had to get done. Sometimes we must be submitted unto God that he is working differently than what we are. Sometimes our calendar becomes God itself. We begin to follow the weak and the beggarly things by observing all these different things simply because they keep us busy. It is a world that even I catch myself being ever so guilty of asking how busy are you. Are you staying busy? That's one of my common questions. And I'm catching myself knowing that that's problematic. It doesn't matter if you're staying busy. You can be the busiest person on earth and not getting anything accomplished, not getting anything done. You can be the busiest person on earth and never resting in God. Beloved, it might be sometimes that he swaps you into the middle of a deserted area, into the middle of a wilderness just to teach you who he is, that he may use you according to his purposes. It may be that he breaks you of all the calendars and of all the times just that you would learn to trust in him. But if this was not bad enough, Paul hastens at another level. He says, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. I think at that point, the Galatians must have been disappointed in themselves. If they weren't already disappointed by the way Paul's been talking to them, as soon as they begin to be built back up a little bit, Paul seems to level them back down a little bit. They said, I'm worried that I have labored with you in vain. I'm worried everything that I have done has been for naught. How terrible that must have been for Paul. It's easy for me just to put myself in the, in, into the shoes of the Galatians sometimes and understand where their problems are coming from. And I kind of seem to have a knack for doing that because so many times I'm like, well, that's me. That's what I would be doing. But to sit here with Paul and say, has everything been wasted? I know that parents at some point or another have faced a situation with their child that perhaps you wondered, has it all been for naught? Has it all been wasted? I don't know. Maybe y'all had perfect children. I know my in-laws, they had pretty good. They had, they had a pretty good child. They were kind of spoiled with a good child. But my parents, they had me and Tyler. They had some troubles. They had some difficulties. I'm not saying either one of us were necessarily bad children. I'm just saying we were typical American boys. We had our problems. We had our things. But I wonder how many times my parents had to sit there and wonder, was it off enough? There had to be a few moments. Maybe not every day. I hope there wasn't every day, y'all. Y'all tell me after service. But at some point or another, I wonder if they just had days that you're living your life and you just wonder is everything I've done for Jesus Christ? Is there ever a time in your life where you just wonder that person you've been talking to, that person you've been speaking to, or that, I mean, that person you've been praying for for years is it all for naught? Will it never come to fruition? i got to tell the story of Brother Terry Pace. I, I love this story that I heard him tell a couple years ago now that it's been he talked about Odie was his name. He Said his mama, his mama played in the church or something like that, or was in the church that he was pastoring at then at that time. And, and she would always get up every Sunday and she said, Y'all pray for Odie. He's out there doing this and that. And y'all pray for Odie. 
And for years, she just kept on saying, pray for Odie. Well, it's something like 20 years later, Brother Pace was back in that church. And all of a sudden, there was this young man playing the piano or something like that. And apparently, he was a prolific piano player. And Brother Pace asked, said, well, who is that man? And they said, that's Odie such and such. And he said, wait a minute, that's Odie. He realized that the prayers of that mother, apparently, I think that mother, if I remember the story right, I think that mother was already gone. I think that mother was no longer living. And yet, her prayers had been answered in another generation. Beloved, sometimes we think that everything is for naught. Sometimes things need to be checked up on. But beloved, even Paul's hope is ultimately in Christ. He says in verse 12, he says, Brethren, I beseech you that be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Paul's inviting them to be like he is, inviting them to trust in Christ like he trusts in Christ. He says, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. That Paul has that infirmity. Many people argue what the infirmity is. I'll be real frank with you. I kind of read this passage and it seems evident that it had something to do with his eyes. We know the scales had fallen off of his eyes. But apparently Paul has a problem seeing or something like that because he talks about, if you'd been able to pluck out your own eyes, you would have given them to me. Paul admits that in his infirmity, he shares the gospel. He says in his loneliness, in his brokenness, not in his ability to live according to the law, but according to the infirmity of his flesh, that's how he proclaims the gospel. There is no greatness about us. There is nothing but weakness about us. I love one preacher, Alistair Begg. If you ever have the chance to listen to him, I would highly I would highly recommend Alistair Beck to you. He's a pastor in Chicago, and I love what he says. So many times he'll talk about his wife, and he says, well, it's a good thing. He says his wife lumbled him down and said, well, it's a good thing that you were called to be a preacher because you're not good at anything else. And I think about that sometimes, about how true that is for us preachers. It's a good thing he called us to what he did because we're really not good at anything else. It's the one thing that we know how to do. We may have other jobs. We may have other skill sets. But it's really the only thing that we know how to do. And even that we have to do through weakness. Your proclamation, your faith and trust of telling somebody else about the gospel is not in your strength. It is not in your ability. The ability rests in God and in God alone. If you are doing this according to your way and according to your strength, you're doing it wrong. I'm preaching to myself that I do it wrong. I do it in my own strength. It's me, Charles Jr. Y'all always hear me talk about him. He had a nine-point plan to getting people to He had a nine-point plan of evangelism. He said, do you want to go to church with me? It's a nine-point plan to get somebody to church. Do you want to go to church with me? And I thought, that's a nine-point evangelism plan right there. If we can remember that. He called it the ten-point because put a question mark on the end of it. But if we could remember those nine words, and if we could just use those nine words, you know how wonderful that would be? Do you know how wonderful it would be if you could just start a relationship with somebody by saying, how can I pray for you? How can I care for you? Can you be more like Jesus? Can I look to the rest of the world and see their brokenness and see their sinfulness and just begin to browbeat them and it do any good? I'm more and more convinced that it's about attitude and how we approach people, and that's not going to win I'm not, I'm not studying what's his face's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I'm not saying that's a terrible book. I'm just saying when it comes to the purpose of the gospel, that's not what I'm about. I'm just saying maybe we ought to be friendlier. Maybe we could be a little bit more sociable with people. Maybe we could be a little bit more inviting to people. I realize that I've grown up in the South. I realize I've grown up in this independent vein. Is that we get to be kind of mean people. We get to be mean about certain sins. We get to be mean about certain books. And it's exactly what seems to be happening here in this passage in verses 12 through 20, what Paul is dealing with. He says, And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despise not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you speak of? 
Do you see how you treated me formerly? Do you see how you talked about me formerly? And yet, where is this blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? How many times it is that when you speak truth into somebody's life, they don't like it. How many times that I've had some men step into my life and tell me a truth that I did not want to hear, but that I needed to hear it because it leveled me down and it taught me lessons that I've been learning from ever since. It's things that I keep in my head. It humbled me down real quick. Like they didn't mean it mainly. They didn't say anything. All that they had to do was tell me the truth. It wasn't in the brow beating. It wasn't in any of these moments. All that they did was present to me the truth. And yet it was. Can I turn to them and not like them anymore? Or did I have to listen to the truth and sit down a while? Now, a secret about me, in case you don't know this, is if you tell me the truth and it upsets me, it's probably going to upset me a little bit, especially if I'm wrong. It's going to upset me for a little bit. Give me some time to cool down and I'll be okay. I get over it eventually. It does not take me a minute, okay? I'm stubborn like that. I'll admit that. That's not a good thing. That's a negative quality in me. God's still working on them. And I'll be perfect just according to his plan, thankfully. Love that old song. Beloved, are you now, is he now their enemy? Beloved, sometimes in this world when we tell people the truth, that's exactly what it's going to become. There's times that we speak truth into people's lives, that they begin to see, perceive us as an enemy. There's situations that all you're trying to do is continually share the gospel with them, continually trying to share the truth with them, and yet they become your enemies. And yet they become people that position themselves against you. Paul's just calling upon his relationship with them to get them to remind them of these things. He says, and this is where that word flattery comes in. Paul's not speaking to them with flattery, but look at those that are. He says, they zealously afflict you. That's basically saying they zealously afflict, uh, affect you is that they flatter you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Their plan is not to bring you in. Their plan is not to make you one of them. Their plan is to flatter you so that you would look like them, so that you would talk like them. But you're always going to be an outcast. You're never going to be in the family. You're never going to be one of the descendants of Abraham. You're never going to belong into them. There's no hope that you have of it. You need to look like they do. You need to talk like they do. You need to act like they do. But you're never going to actually belong to you. They zealously affect you. They flatter you because you look like them, because you talk like them. And yet you do no good. It says, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. Paul's got a tendency to not be snarky necessarily, but Paul has a sly way of writing sometimes. He says, it's good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Not only when I am present with you. Paul's reminding them once you were zealously affected, once you were actually flattered in a good thing because you were doing good things, Sometimes there's something good about your life that needs to be given an accolade about it. Flattery, be ever so careful with it. Be ever so careful with it. Somebody one time, I wish I could remember saying, said flattery is like perfume. It's okay to take a whiff, but don't try to drink it. I thought about how true that that is. It's, it's, it's just like that. It, it's good for a whiff, but don't try to drink it. And that's what the Galatians seem to have been doing. They seem to be drinking it from the bottle. That's only doing anything but to make them sick. He says in verse 19, My little children of whom I travail and birth again unto Christ be formed in you. Mark Lloyd-Jones is known as quoting about preaching. He said, Preaching is the closest thing to childbirth a man shall ever do. That kind of seemed weird. That kind of seemed odd. And then I start reading Paul. And I'm like, well, I guess it's supposed to be a little bit about childbirth. I 
can't imagine. I'm not a woman. I can't imagine carrying somebody in your womb for nine months and then giving birth to them. I hear about postpartum depression. I hear about all these different things. I hear about all these atrocities. I cannot imagine being in that situation, being a mother and giving birth to somebody, travailing in birth until Christ be formed in you, until that child is formed and comes out of you, until it is ready to come into this world. Beloved, was, was this a preborn baby? Was this one born too soon? Was was this one was this one born under such conditions that it came out before it was formed? Paul saying, "Did we give birth to you, but it was too soon? Did you come out of the womb too soon? Were you not ready to be out too soon? Have you ever baked a cake and it comes out and you didn't get the ingredients right and you didn't cook it the right amount of time and it gets too cool and you put it back in the oven and it only burns it and then it's still raw in the middle? It's something about it when you pull out a cake, it's like it never cooks right again. It never goes back in there and cooks just the way that you'd have it to if you let it sit out and cool. Paul is wondering, have I erred in you? Have I given up all of this in vain? Have I done all of these things and Christ is not even formed in you. He says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice for I stand in doubt of you. Paul knows his voice has a certain harshness to it. Paul knows his tone is a little bit harsh in this moment. But he knows that he's standing in doubt of you. The relationship that they had with the Jews of their time was one of flattery. Look like us and we'll accept you. Act like us and we'll accept you. How high school is that? How middle school is that? How elementary school is that? But if you'll just look like we do, we'll accept you. We'll let you be one of us. I confess, I thought it was a middle school thing until I got to high school. And then I thought it was a high school thing until I got to college. And then when I got to college, I thought, well, this will be the end of this. And then I got into the rest of the adult world and I figured, hey, that's just as bad among any adults. All those children in the school are doing this mimicking their moms and dads. All they're doing is mimicking the ones that are giving guardianship of them. All that they're doing is just reflecting the same truths. That every one of us has these tendencies that I want to fit in. If you're dressing a certain way, I want to dress a certain way. If you're saying certain words, I want to say certain words. It's amazing that the accents in the United States up until about starting about 20 years ago, we had regional accents. And I could tell where you were from. You knew that us have country boys from Georgia. And I've even been to Washington, D.C. before. And somebody said, you're from Georgia, aren't you? I've never forgot that time when I was in fifth grade. And somebody knew, based on my regional accent, where I was from. But, beloved, in this current generation, because we watch so much television, those accents are beginning to disappear. They're doing numerous studies on this. They say this doesn't make sense. All of a sudden, what we call the Valley Girl accent is actually becoming the most prevalent accent in all of America, where it's got a little bit of what we call a vocal fry to it. Just giving you all a free lesson over here. And it's got a little bit of a vocal fry to it over here in the way that they talk. And it's just what we call that valley girl accent. And it's not trying to be derogatory. It's just what it's been being called here recently. And so many people have watched so much. And believe it or not, it's one show in particular. I'm not going to call the name of it, but it's one show and it starts with Kate. You can figure it out on your own. That so many people have watched, it begins to be like the, what the rest of us sound like. Because it's what culture purports as the good accent. It's another reason that they say that so many Americans love a British accent. Is because it sounds like what we expect language to sound like. It sounds like what we want somebody to speak like. And I don't know about y'all. I do love. I love watching a British TV show just to hear them talk. I think it's really neat the way that they talk. That's what sounds higher class. And if we're not careful, we begin to try to mimic them in all the wrong ways. And if we're not careful, we'll just turn out to be a bad person. Beloved, we so easily mimic other people in our lives, and we don't even realize we're doing it. Those that we're friends with, we become more. Those that we hang out with, we become more like. Hanging out with good people, you become more like good people. Hanging out with bad people, 
you're going to be more like bad people. The business world really has this figured out. They know it, that if you're hanging out with successful people, you're more likely to be successful. If you're hanging out with unsuccessful people, you're more likely to be unsuccessful. It's just one of those things the business world's got figured out. But a lot of it, sometimes we want to look a certain way, we want to act a certain way. But Paul's saying, I stand in doubt. He says in verse 21, he, he flushes this out, and I love this passage. He says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman by promise, was by promise. That Abraham got ahead of himself. God had already made a promise with him. God had already made the covenant with him and said, through your seed, I'm going to do this. Abraham takes it on himself to have the seed through an unconventional means, through an illegitimate means. Abraham takes it upon himself to say, well, I know which is right. Get out of me, out of the way. Do what I'm telling you on how to drive. I'm in charge of this thing is what Abraham begins to think. But Isaac is not the son of the free woman. He is the son of the bondwoman. He is the son of bondage. In verse 24, it says, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is the Agar. From this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and entereth to Jerusalem, which now is, interesting, and is under bondage with her children. But Paul looks to both covenants. He says, if you're the son, if you're the son of Israel, you're in bondage unto the son of Israel, but even the son of Israel over here in this sense, even those that answer to Jerusalem, which is in bondage with her children, but then in verse 26, he turns it around. He says, but Jerusalem, which above, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Paul is trying to get the Galatians to realize this is a greater promise than just that promise that was given to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is not the first covenant that's given to us in the Bible. Some people would argue that the Noahic covenant is the first covenant given to us. Some people would go back and actually say there is the Edenic covenant that was given to them. In terms, they've got all these different covenants, and people argue about how many covenants there are in the Bible. And I love studying. I love studying a good covenant. It's just one of those things. It makes sense to me. I want to understand it. But what is needed to be known is Paul is saying these are an allegory. These are things which are pointing to something greater than them. Yes, Jesus is going to be the seed of Abraham. He's already said that, but he's wanting us to know that there is something that is greater. We're talking about the Jerusalem, which is above, is free. It is the mother of us all. Paul is trying to get them to realize it's not about following the law. The reason that the law was brought in was because of their errors, their unrighteousness, their wickedness, even as he is talking about in chapter 3, is because they weren't following God the way that they should. And even they couldn't keep it. It took Jesus Christ himself to come and fill the law perfectly, fill the law to the fullest extent that it could be possible so that he would fulfill the promise. It's about that Jesus is the covenantal son. It is about the covenant. It's not about the law. It's not about the rules that we put in place. I grew up in a culture that I don't know where they got this. And still many of them are still alive, and I could go talk to them and then still tell you this. They really did believe that when you were born again, Jesus only died for those sins that you committed before you were born again. The truth, you can go talk to these people still to this day. They believe that every sin that you commit after you were born again, you have faith in you. Well, that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Now, can you commit sin? And bad things happen in your life? Can, can there be some things that happen and occur in your life that feel a little bit like punishment? No doubt. But, beloved, can you pay for those sins? No. 
Do y'all realize that when you read this blessed book, Israel couldn't pay for their sins? There's never been anybody in this world apart from Jesus that could pay for their sins. And he had no sins to pay for. If he had been sinful, he could not have paid for any sins. No, it was that he was perfectly righteous in every way. It was that the innocent died for the guilty. And that scene of C.S. Lewis is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe to where when the lion finally comes back to life, and I, I quote, it's, it's just this wonderful, wonderful truth that he says, yes, the witch knew the magic that she could kill it, but it did not realize, and it gives this diatribe. And C.S. Lewis is pointing us to the fact that all along, yes, that somebody had to die for it, but yes, that if it was a perfect one, he was going to be resurrected on the third day, that yes, he was the only one that could bear our penalty of sin because he belongs to the Jerusalem, which is above, which is free, below. It's not on the basis of whether or not you follow rules and decorum. It's not on the basis of whether you follow what mom and daddy always told you to do just because they told you to do it. No, it's on the basis of whether or not we belong to God. It's not on the basis of flattery. It's not on the basis of you don't eat this, you don't eat that. Now, for people in here, we have different dietary plans. That's okay. I don't have a problem with you having different dietary plans. Matter of fact, some of you eat a certain diet, I'm like, oh, I got impressed. Beloved, we do different things. But don't let us elevate these things about what we're supposed to do. I have certain things that I do. I have certain things that I won't do. I have certain things on social media. I'm not going to like certain posts that have certain words in them because I think that's just not right. Other people have no problem liking stuff on social media. That's personal rule. I'm not going to hold you to my standard. That's not a standard that I can find in the Bible. That's a standard I think has got some wisdom. It's not a standard I can hold you to. Beloved, it's not about the rules that about whether or not we belong to God. Now, there are things that are contrary to His Word that we don't need to do. That is true. But be careful that it's not our opinion. I've got an opinion I've already been talking about, so I'll keep using the illustration. And when I'm driving behind somebody, I know the way you ought to be driving. But you may disagree on the way that we ought to be driving. You may disagree that if we're on a, speed, on a road that has a speed limit of 55, you should be going at least 55. Now, that's my, that's my opinion right there. If it's dry, it's good. Weather conditions, my opinion is you should be going at least 55 miles per hour on a road that says 55. If you're going 45 miles per hour on that 55 miles per hour road, I'm upset with you behind you. And I'm convinced that it is the best policy that you need to go to the speed limit. But that person that's in the car in front of me may be able to turn back to me and you realize that's the, that's the high speed limit. That's the speed limit, not the speed low. That's the fastest you're supposed to drive, not the lowest you're supposed to drive. And they would be right. I have a way that seemeth right unto me. You have a way that seemeth right unto you. But let not the ends thereof be the ways of death. Let us instead follow the ways of Christ and follow him. Let us not be given unto bondage. It says for in verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. That is a quotation from Isaiah. I think it's about chapter 54, but it's in the book of Isaiah that he's quoting. And if you know where the book of Isaiah falls, it's when the children are in bondage. It's when Israel is in a time of slavery, in a time of exile. They're no longer living in the promised land, and so many of them in these days and times. In the book of in the book of Isaiah, they're living in tumultuous times. They're living in times to where it's all about the Jesus that is to come. Ultimately, that's what the book of Isaiah is about, is the Jesus that is to come. What rich, wonderful truths are in that book of Isaiah. And one of them is verse 27 here of Galatians chapter 4. They were under bondage. They were travailing. It says in verse 28, though, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. 
But as then that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it now is. Paul is essentially saying to them, expect that you're going to be pushed against. Expect that somebody that is under bondage is going to come against you. The hardest battles I have ever fought in my life, and I've not fought many of them, I know, I know that. But the hardest battles that I've ever fought in my life have been with people that wanted me to live according to their rules. They didn't want to live according to the Word of God. They wanted me to live according to their rules. I'm not talking about the parents here. They wanted me to live according to their rules. They wanted everything to go according to their rules. As long as it went according to their rules, that's what was right. If you tried to pressure them, if you tried to be like, all right, what does the Bible say? If you tried to get them to go to the Bible and say, where does the Bible teach us this? Where does the Word of God communicate to us? Is this the truth? They're not able to do that with you. It amazes me how that the majority of church splits have nothing to do with the Word of God. And yet how the majority of people that are church splitters will tell you, oh, it was about the Word of God. He don't preach the Word of God anymore. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. They don't do this. They don't do that. And yet it had nothing to do with the Word of God at all. If anything, it had to do with the surprising light that none of us understood what the Word of God is. None of us understood what the Word of God was teaching us, and we needed to. Paul is travailing us in birth again that they might be formed as in Christ. He's travailing us in birth to bring them to be formed like Christ so that they may know what the Word of God is. He said that Israel, those that are from Jerusalem, just as Peter began to get overtaken by them and Peter erred, they've got hold on you, but they don't have the right. Just because the brethren in court may say this, as I call them sometimes, just because the brethren in court does it this way, just because they do it that way, doesn't mean it's always got to be that way. Beloved, we must be in Christ instead. In verse 30 it says, Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul acknowledges that you must cast out. Every one of us in our life has relationships. And I don't mean just like a romantic relationship or a relationship with your children. No, you have a relationship with everybody in your life. You have a relationship with everything in your life. There is some form of a relationship. So when we say the word relationship, that's what I mean by that is you are relating to everything. Some of the relationships that you have need to be strengthened. Some of the relationships that you have, there's something broken about them that need to be fixed between the two of you. Some of the relationships that you have need to be walked away from. Sometimes that's the fix that needs to be on a situation. Paul is telling them, he said, you need to cast out the bondwoman. If somebody is trying to get you to live under rules and live under things that are contrary according to the word of God, you need to get out from underneath them. You need to cast them out. It doesn't say just leave them out. It says you need to get them to leave. You need to cast them out. There are people, there are relationships in your lives. There are different things in your lives that you may need to cast out because that's what the word of God is telling you to do. There are some things that may hurt in your life. There are some situations that when Abraham was watching his son, when he watched them, and I, I'm with the others that said he probably watched them until they become as small as a speck out there, and all these different things that Abraham had to be much in travail or much in pain much in agony as he watched his child walking away from him to know that he was never going to see him again. It was still Abraham's child. It wasn't through legitimate means. It wasn't through the covenantal promises of God. Abraham still had a real relationship with them. But the bottom woman and her son had to be cast out. They could not stay in the camp. There are certain things in our life that need to be done away with or it's going to only cause things to get worse. Sin needs to be dealt with in our lives. When you leave here today, I want you to look at the parking lot. 
target line's got a problem, in case y'all haven't noticed it. It looks more like grass than it does like asphalt sometimes. And don't get me wrong, we've tried to poison it. I don't know how many times. It does not matter how much poison you put in that thing, that grass is gonna grow. We've got some good poison that works on everything else we put it on. But on this parking lot, it just doesn't seem to take. It just doesn't seem to keep. And beloved, if we let that grass grow, what it's going to continue to do, you can go out there and see all the different lines in the parking lot. 20-something years ago, it was filled in with some black tar. But it's been 20 years since it was filled in. The job did it for a little while, but it's not doing it anymore. That grass has come up between it. It's causing the parking lot to fracture. If we don't do something about it eventually, it's going to further fracture in the parking lot, and it's going to further cause damage up here, and we're going to have bigger problems if we don't eventually face it. Now, I'm not asking for some big solution for us to do that now. It might be something we need to look at. But it amazes me how that's what happens with our relationships. Something grows in that fractures us from the foundation that we're supposed to have. And instead of taking care of the problem, we just try to save it over. Again, we can go out tomorrow and put poison out. Grass will be growing back in about a month and a half. We temporarily solve some of the problems that we have. Instead of asking God what we really need is, as much as we may poison it, the only solution to it is the parking lot's going to need to be resurfaced. Sometimes God needs to do an overhaul in our lives. Sometimes God might have to do truly something dramatic in your lives. But, beloved, we need to be obedient to the truth. We need to be mindful of these things, not to give in to folly, not to give in to flattery. But we need to be reminded that the relationship that we need to have is with freedom and not with bondage. We should live for Jesus, not to live for I'd like us to look like some of these bigger churches sometimes. I'd like us to have Sunday school like these bigger churches. I'd like us to have more things like these bigger churches. But it just doesn't seem to be God's will for us to have those things just yet. If ever, I don't, I don't know about it all. But I'm thankful for what we do have. I'm thankful again that y'all are reading through the book of Galatians. I'm thankful that here in a few moments we're on partaking the Lord's Supper. I'm thankful that we sing good quality songs. I'm thankful we work through books of the Bible together. Loving too often I can stress on the badness and stress on the negatives instead of focusing on the good things. Instead of focusing on my life with Jesus, instead of focusing on our life with Jesus, I begin to look to everything else. Can we find the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Let's find the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, as we stand and sing together this morning. Let us sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.